Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. We, we have a great one today, and I mean it. You know, sometimes I say we have a great one for a change. That's a joke, okay? Uh, but this one is really, really great. This is Mark Elias, who is the election lawyer for the Democratic Party. And uh, we are going to have uh, a weird election, probably, because Trump's the president is one, and also because we're at this moment and we don't know what November is going to look like. So. I talked to Mark Elias about, mainly about that, uh, about trying to make sure that we have an election, and we will, we have to. Mark Elias is the lawyer, really, uh, for the Democratic Party. He represents me. He represents uh, pretty much, I think, every member of the U.S. Senate. He was the guy who ran my recount, which was a nine-month most of that just the legal battle. I think you're going to really, really enjoy this this interview. We have an election coming up in November, the first Tuesday after the first Monday. That's when you have to have the selection. That's, we will have it. Uh, there's just a lot of questions about, let's say, the uh, pandemic is back in November. How are we going to do this? How are we going to make sure that people can vote absentee? How are we going to make sure that it's fair? You know, how are we going to make sure that there are enough polls open for people to vote? How are we going to do early voting so that we can spread people out? This is a very, uh, very important, I think, interview. Um, I don't know if you heard, this is a couple weeks ago now, I guess, Trump stop these White House briefings, at least temporarily, because he talked about injecting disinfectant in your bodies. And remember, he said at the CDC that he really knows this stuff, that everyone is, all the doctors and scientists at the CDC were amazed at how, how well he understood everything. And uh, he had to stop after embarrassing himself so, so badly. Uh, and that takes a lot for him to get embarrassed or to understand, have people tell him <laughs> he, he embarrassed himself and for him to understand it and act on it. But anyway, Dr. Burks, in one of those press conferences, was asked about Georgia opening, 
And the tattoo parlors and the massage parlors and getting, you know, barbershops. And she was asked, like, how are they going to maintain social distancing when you're getting a haircut or a massage or a tattoo? Instead of saying, you can't. You can't. Here's what she said. If there's a way that people can social distance and do those things, then they can do those things. I don't know how, but people are very creative. Uh, okay. You can't take a pass on that one. You, can, you, you have to say, you can't do it. You can't, you can't get a haircut. You know, no one invented the six-foot scissors. And a tattoo artist that would, again, have, I guess you could invent something. Now, I, I'm sheltering in place, and I was going a little stir-crazy. So when Georgia opened, I drove down there. I went to Dalton, Georgia. And I uh, got a haircut, a massage, and tattoo all at the same time. Uh, the tattoo I got is a drawing of that, and it's uh, it's you know really commemorating this period of time uh, on my uh, my arm, and uh, I I don't I didn't do that. Uh, let's see. So <laughs> uh, this we do not have a coherent national approach to this whole thing. And normally that would come from a coherent president. We just don't have that. So it's going to have to come, I think, from Congress. And by that, I mean the House, because McConnell has no interest in that. So we need hearings. That's one of the things I've been writing about is how we need to have hearings. One of the things we need to have hearings on right away is testing. This is ridiculous that we do not have a national approach to testing. Now, Andy Slavitt, who's been my guest several times, uh, he and Scott Gottlieb, who is the former, under Trump, the head of the FDA, have put together a plan that really, really makes a lot of sense. You know, the Current package, last package had twenty five billion uh, for for testing, but there were no hearings about it. Um, this is what Slavitt and Gottlieb have put together. It's a it would cost forty six point five billion dollars. Twelve billion dollars would expand the the contact tracing workforce. These are people they don't need a lot of training. It's one hundred eighty thousand people. So that's 180,000 jobs. And Larry Brilliant is part of this group that came up with this. Larry Brilliant is going to be my guest next week. He is one of the people who eradicated smallpox from the face of this earth. The way they did it was manpower. They literally went door to door. 100,000 people in, in India when they eradicated it. They just found the last case and that was it. They isolated people and they got rid of smallpox. We're not gonna get rid of this, but we need to find people, isolate them, and do this tracking. 
Now, there's $4.5 billion in this plan to use vacant hotels so that infected people can self-isolate. Now, that you know what? That's Hotels are hurting. This is $4.5 billion for hotels. And these people who self-isolate would get 50 bucks a day to voluntarily self-isolate. It's about 50 bucks a day is like what you get for jury duty. 18 months of this, of offering income support for people who are self-isolating because they've been tested positive. This is how we have to approach this. And people are going, well, $46.5 billion. We will make up for that in economic activity because we'll be able to get going faster if we do this right. We would have been able to get going faster, would open up faster if we had done this from the very beginning. And if, if the president and his supporters are going to start blaming Democrats for wanting to shut things down, he's the one to blame. He's the one to blame for this. He's the one to blame for the enormous costs this has had to our economy and for all the deaths. Someone said to me, I was doing a pre-interview for an MSNBC thing, and the person I was talking to said to me, what do you think about uh, people who say, well, you know, at least it's old people. You know, they're old and it's the last, you know, last few years of their life, so it's no big deal. And my response was, well, yeah, that's kind of a terrible thing to say, but think about this. What if instead of old people, this was hitting primarily little kids? How, how crushed would we be? So that's, that's a real blessing. I'm sheltered in place, and uh, I see my two grandchildren, uh, two, of, two of my four, thank God, and they're six and three. And um, we have lost a couple little kids, I think about stuff like that. You can tell when I'm really uh, cheery. Uh, you know, over the last number of weeks, we have uh, seen a number of protests across the nation calling for governors and, and local officials to lift the stay-in-place orders. Polling shows that a pretty sizable majority of Americans uh, think that would be dangerous, uh, certainly a huge majority of epidemiologists. Uh, but a number of Trump uh, supporters want to see these orders uh, dropped and get people back to work. And one of them is my first guest, former Major League pitcher Kurt Schilling, who now hosts an online radio show for Breitbart. And he joins me by phone from his home in Scottsdale, Arizona. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Schilling. Uh, you can call me Kurt, Al. Well, I didn't say you could call me Al. So it's going to be like that, huh? Uh, I'm sorry, that was just a joke. Really? No wonder you failed as a comedian. Okay, Kurt. Um, uh, call uh, me Mr. Schilling. Fine. Uh, Mr. Schilling, some of my listeners probably don't know that you won three World Series rings. I think they all know that, Al. 
Okay, fine. Yeah, fine. Well, uh, why don't we just get right to the idea that you broached on your Breitbart radio show to reopen Major League Baseball. Yeah, it's about time you got to it. Look, baseball is America's game. And what better way to say that America is back than to reopen Major League Baseball? Sure, uh, but the commissioner Let me finish, Mr. Franken. I'm well aware that the commissioner has decided not to reopen. So here's my idea. And I've worked a lot on this since I first talked about it on my Breitbart show. Okay, go ahead. I've already gotten over 200 right-wing Major League ball players to play baseball starting next week in my, what I'm calling, Kurt Schilling's Freedom League. Freedom League. Kurt Schilling's Freedom League. Right. Uh, can, can you just give us some names of the players? <laughs> and give you a scoop? No way. But let me tell you. We have some of the best white major league ball players in baseball. So it's an all-white league? No, of course not. Look, this is going to be a fun league, okay? It's going to be entertainment, okay? And we will have an all-black team. The Memphis Mudhens, made up of black guys from double-A ball who just want a chance to play in the majors and get badly beaten by the all-white teams in the league. Any, any Hispanic players? No. And no Muslims either. And Muslims aren't allowed in the stands. Wait, so this isn't just for TV? It, people are going to be in the stands? Absolutely. And no social distancing. Okay, I'm, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. There will be folks in the stands who are infected with the virus and, and don't know it who will infect others at the game. That's why I called it Kurt Schilling's Freedom League. Everybody who goes to the games will get a red Kurt Schilling's Freedom League baseball cap that they will be required to wear whenever they're in public so that left-wing jerks like you will have the freedom to steer clear of them. Okay, uh, one last question. Uh, have you talked to President Trump about this? Yes, and he will be throwing out the first pitch on May 8th when the Pensacola Yahoos host the Oklahoma Blitzkrieg. Should be a good time. Well, well thank you, Mr. Schilling. You can call me Kurt. Kurt. Shalom. Well, uh, let's keep an eye on that. Okay, let's uh, cheer things up here. Cheer things up. I got a great one today with Mark Elias. Uh, great guy. I know, I know, I know. Yeah, you're going to love this. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions 
may apply. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. I am so pleased to have with me today Mark Elias uh, with law firm Perkins Coie. Uh, which is the premier law firm for the Democratic Party, representing the party itself, virtually every uh, Democratic U.S. senator, tons of House members, governors. Now, Mark, tell us what you do. You're, you're a lawyer at the firm, right? I am indeed. Now, your parents must be very proud. <laughs> My parents uh, were very proud. My brother and I were both lawyers, and uh, I think they would have wished we had gone into finance, but uh, we're doing okay. And that, of course, means you went to law school, right? I did. I went to law school at Duke University in uh, North Carolina. Uh, the law school alma mater of Richard Nixon. It is indeed, uh, and also Ken Starr. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to make <laughs> up for that every day. Okay. And because we're both sheltered in, in place, we're obviously not doing this face-to-face. So could you give me some idea of what you look like? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm. It's an audio medium, and uh, when I have a Sarah Silverman or a Malcolm Nance on, people have some picture in their head, right? Uh, so, would you mind describing yourself? <laughs> yes. So I am. Um, I'm six foot five. Uh, I am fifty one years old, and I look mm-hmm. like a lawyer. <laughs> and you're much slimmer than when you did the recount. I am. I lost uh, uh, between 75 and 100 pounds. Um, I am slimmer, I am fitter, and I am ready for action. Right, because I was very worried about you during, as I think the uh, listeners have gathered by now, Mark and I are very, very good friends. And Mark is my lawyer and has been since uh, 2008 when I uh, ran for the Senate and clobbered uh, Norm Coleman in the narrowest clobbering in in history, right? Yes, but you know we oftentimes say that if you know that you don't want to spend more money than is necessary to win. So you know if you win by ten points, then you know it you probably put too much into it. So you put just enough into that race <laughs> to to get a victory, and just enough into the recount. Speaking of which, how is the Al Franken wing of Perkins Coie? <laughs> we're we're, do, well, we're currently closed, uh, or not the firm closed, but you know we're currently the offices are closed, so we're all working remotely. But I am in the Al Franken office of my house. <laughs> okay, uh, and it was all incredibly well worth it. You did an amazing job. How many uh, votes did I win by? Just a bit over 300. 312. Yeah, 312. I don't know why it sticks in my head. Clearly, after the initial recount was over in January, I could have been seated with the rest of my colleagues uh, from that class. Uh, Norm Coleman immediately (laughs) conceded, right? (laughs) Um, He did not. I have to say that the the Minnesota press corps was quite forgiving of uh, former... Uh, Senator Coleman, because he didn't concede uh, in December. Uh, he didn't concede in January. 
or February or March or April or May. Or no, there was a uh, trial there, or what, what do you call it? An election contest. Correct. Uh, in court, and that's where I really, really got to know you because you were, well, all, all during the recount. And um, so we had that, and that ended when, in March? Uh, well, the trial ended in March, but as you recall, we went to the state Supreme Court uh, because Norm Coleman then didn't concede after the trial. Basically, they just, the Republicans did everything to delay me and my being seated because I was the 60th. I ended up being the 60th vote. And in Minnesota, the law is that the whole process of the recount has to proceed, all the legal process, including the Supreme Court has to sign off before I was allowed to be seated. Um, hence the uh, the delay, because with other state laws, I could have been seated right away, right? That's correct. In most states, you would have been seated pending the outcome of the election contest. Harry wanted to try to seat me. <laughs> the idea was floated that when they seat the Senate, uh, seat new members, they do it in a particular order. But I don't know if it's by state or alphabetically, or but there is a process by which they do it. If we had altered that order and had seated the right number of Democrats. Democrats first, and there was a way to do that. Again, I don't remember exactly how it works, whether it's by state or alphabetical or whatever, but there was a point in the process that if we followed that process, that normal process, there was a point at which Democrats would essentially have either 60 or 66, whatever the number of votes they would the need. The two-thirds of, of, of those who'd been sworn in would have been able to vote me Correct. In. Exactly. I, I said no to that because I told you, I'd like to be reelected. And I think I said to you, uh, re-election is not my business. My business is getting is getting you seated the first time. Then you'll worry about re-election. That's right. My instinct was, you know, Minnesotans are pretty good government people. We are the highest uh, percentage of vote. And I won the next one by over 200,000 yeah, votes. Yeah, and look, you were right. I mean, you were right at the time. You are right in retrospect. And before before people <laughs> before people jumped down my throat over thinking that this was worth considering, I mean, understand the time frame of this. We we had at this point won the recount, and the state board of elections had declared you the winner. And the only thing we were waiting on at this point was the certificate of election, which couldn't be issued because uh, Norm Coleman was entering into a contest which is a relatively unusual law that Minnesota has. So, you know, I was weighing the fact that the people of Minnesota had elected you and were entitled to two U.S. senators. And in most states, I would have been seated. In almost, while, I, while, I, at the time, while. I think it was literally every state. Um, I think Minnesota was unique at that point. Um, maybe there, maybe someone's going to correct that and say there was one or two others. But, but Minnesota's rule is decidedly not normal in this regard. And so, you know, my view was not that you'd get seated and the contest would go away, but that you'd be seated pending the outcome of the, the contest. Um, and then at that point, you know, if there had to be a change, there'd be a change. But, but it was pretty clear to me that you were going to be the ultimate winner. And there was, a, you know, President Obama was coming into his first term, and it seemed important that, that there be a full complement of senators. Yeah, and we would have had 60 a lot sooner. Yeah, yeah it would have been nice to have my vote. And it would have been easier to pass the stimulus and those kinds of things. 
Well, look, I'd like to get back to stories about the recount uh, just for uh, for my entertainment. But I, I do want to get to the 2020 election. And that's really why it's so important to have you here. Uh, this will be our, our first presidential election during a pandemic in a long time. I mean, 1918 was a midterm. Correct. So this is definitely the first election that we have had um, in our lifetimes during um, a pandemic. And as you say, the first presidential election ever uh, in the midst of a pandemic. And also, it's the first election since 1982, where the Republican National Committee has not been under a court-ordered consent decree not to engage in ballot security, poll monitoring, or voter suppression. So in 1981, there was a very close um, election for governor in New Jersey. The Republican candidate won by fewer than 2,000 votes, which I realized by your standards would be a landslide, but was yes. was, was quite close <laughs> in that election. Um, interestingly, one of the chief aides for the Republican candidate who won narrowly was Roger Stone. But in any event, the Republican mm. National <laughs> Committee ran a program that year in that election where they hired off-duty police officers, but wearing police their police uniforms to patrol majority minority areas of New Jersey and essentially try majority to minority means majority black and major, majority Hispanic uh, areas in New Jersey and essentially harass voters and suppress them from voting. That led to a court ordered consent decree in 1982 that prohibited the Republican National Committee from engaging in those tactics or being involved in ballot security or poll monitoring programs. That consent decree expired in December of 2016. So this is the first election cycle in which the Republican National Committee will be allowed to once again be back in the business of engaging in um, ballot security measures, as they call them, or as I refer to it as voter suppression. That's something to worry about. And then obviously on top of that, we have the pandemic and we have the fact that the president of the United States is regularly attacking our voting systems. Let's first talk about the Wisconsin primary Okay, that we had a few weeks ago. That was the Supreme Court taking a case on a state election and overturning a circuit court and a district court 5-4 along completely, let's say, party lines. There's been a lot written and talked about um, involving Wisconsin and the merits of the decision, whether the 5-4 decision was correct or incorrect. And, and let's, let's make it clear that this was a decision to make Wisconsin voters go out and vote during the pandemic and risk their lives. Yeah. So just to lay the background here. So <laughs> what, was, what was going on in Wisconsin was a couple of things. The first is you had the presidential preference primary, which was not in serious dispute. It was, it was clear that that Vice President Biden was going to win that. And certainly the Republican Party was not animated to engage in the tactics it did for that primary. The second thing that was going on, though, which was really what drove the Republican Party's adamant positions, was that there was a state Supreme Court justice election. So the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin is nonpartisan, but but there was a clearly preferred a progressive candidate by Democrats and a clearly preferred conservative candidate by Republicans. So 
what you really had at stake in that election was really a state contest over uh, the state's Supreme Court. I filed a lawsuit on behalf of the Wisconsin Democratic Party and the Democratic National Committee to seek to um, try to restructure that election or to structure that election so that everyone could vote who um, who wanted to in the middle of a pandemic. The governor, the Democratic governor, had called on the legislature, the, uh, which is Republican control, to postpone the election, which would have been the most sensible thing. And everyone was calling on them to postpone the election. But the Republican legislature wouldn't postpone the election because they believed that it would benefit their candidate um, in the state judicial election. Because the, the, the primary was not going to be really contested. The presidential primary wasn't going to be contested. So really, the only thing on the ballot, basically, I think, was the Supreme Court justice, right? That's right. And they See, and, yeah. and, and the Republicans thought that because the pandemic was hitting Milwaukee harder than it was hitting the rest of the state, that it would suppress voter turnout in Milwaukee. And therefore, they would win this state election. That was their that was their operating political assumption. And in fact, we saw that uh, whereas normally there are 180 plus in person voting locations in Milwaukee, there were only five in, <laughs> that were open for that election. Now, who determines how many there are? I mean, who 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 decided there were five? So there were only five because they couldn't. I mean, it was literally at the height of a pandemic, and they could not get enough poll workers to be willing to work um, on election day, and uh, enough locations that were willing to open their their sites on election day. So to head this off, we went to court to try to ease the rules for absentee voting, figuring okay. You know, we need to do something for these voters. So let's extend the deadlines for people to register to vote, to apply for absentee ballots, and let's uh, make the rules easier for people to cast those ballots and have them counted. And the Republicans fought us tooth and nail at every stage. The Republican National Committee actually intervened as a defendant in that case. So they, they said, we want to be sued too, because we are afraid that the state of Wisconsin won't fight hard enough, <laughs> essentially on its own, that the Republican National Committee intervened. The trial court tried to fashion a reasonable compromise. We didn't get everything we wanted, but tried to fashion a reasonable compromise. That compromise that was ordered went up to the Seventh Circuit, which is among the most conservative circuits in the in the country. So just so that everyone's clear, I I, I think, you know, I, I haven't done the math recently, but I believe that um, there are twelve Republican appointees on the Seventh Circuit and two uh, Obama appointees. So it's a this is not a walk in the park, you know, liberal bench. And what are they getting at this point? They're getting a thing. This is about whether to delay it. No. This was about whether the absentee balloting process would be extended so that more people could have their votes counted. Um, because what we knew was that people, the postal service was just bogged down and people were not even getting their absentee ballots delivered to them in time to vote them and have them returned to the state in the, in the normal deadline that the state has, which is 8 p.m. on election night. So you're trying, basically trying to give people during this pandemic the choice of voting uh, by mail. Correct. Okay. <laughs> that seems to make a lot of sense, yeah, right? Yeah, right. Uh, not that controversial. And like I said, it was uh, ultimately the trial court took steps to try to do that. And the conservative Seventh Circuit um, approved of almost all those steps. So at this point, the 
the Republican National Committee appealed that to the U.S. Supreme Court. And to me, this is the most disturbing part of what happened next. The Supreme Court gets a ton of applications for stay petitions. I mean, every death penalty case goes to them on a stay petition. You know, dozens and dozens per month go to the Supreme Court for emergency stay petitions. And as you know, and as your audience knows, the Supreme Court acts on a very, very small number of cases that come before them because they don't have to, right? They can just say, well, you know what? This has been reviewed by the lower courts and we're going to let things stand as they are. And at this point, are they're sheltered in place, right? Yes, they were doing all this remotely over over a weekend. <laughs> over a weekend, I mean, we we um, filed our briefs um, over a Saturday and a Sunday uh, for an election that was taking place on a Tuesday, where voters had already been told by the lower court and by the Seventh Circuit that relief had been granted to them. So you had voters who were relying on that, and then this mm-hmm. is now before the U.S. Supreme Court over a weekend. So the fact that they took it is. Unbelievable, because this is a state matter. It's a state election. Yeah. Uh, And why would the Supreme Court take this since it's a state election? So I think you I think you put your finger on, like I said, the part that I find most distressing, which is that. So if you're the chief justice, Chief Justice Roberts, and you are saying that there are, I know who the chief justice is. <laughs> and, and you are saying that there are no such things as Democratic judges or Republican judges, and that the Supreme Court and the courts need to stay out of the political thicket. Okay, here on the on the eve of an election over a state Supreme Court justice, right? There's no federal election really being implicated here. There's no federal interest. This is over. Even the presidential primary is a state election because it's it's the state decides how to do that. Precisely. Right? Precisely. And it wasn't contested, right? So Well, and there's that too, but I'm just <laughs> trying to think of the law here. Sure. Because, you know, and so I didn't go to law school, but I played one in a sketch. <laughs> right. So, so this arrives at the court over the weekend before the election. It's already been ruled on by the trial court and by a conservative Seventh Circuit. And the case is literally captioned Republican National Committee versus Democratic National Committee. Okay, that's literally the caption of the case in front of the Supreme Court. And instead of just passing and saying, you know what, we don't need to weigh in on this one. It involves a state-run election in the middle of a pandemic. You know, this has been looked at by a trial court. This has been looked at by a court of appeals. This is obviously a dispute between two political parties. Let's just let this one go. Instead of doing that, the Supreme Court on a Monday night before a Tuesday election issues a 5-4 decision in which the conservative justices essentially roll back some of the relief that had been given to voters and that voters had relied on over the weekend. And I I think that that's like really troubling for a lot of reasons, some having to do with the jurisprudence of of how that was handled and the, the reasoning of how it was handled, but even more so as we look towards November and we ask ourselves, what role are the courts gonna play in, in what will be high-stakes federal elections. I don't think the Supreme Court did itself any favors in weighing in in this case under these circumstances. Well, let's talk about an election during a pandemic, how you do that, and what, what legal, you're, you're the lawyer for the Democratic Party, uh, what legal battles are you gonna have to fight in the next s- several months? 
we are going to have legal battles all throughout the country. We are already seeing legal battles all throughout the country. We're currently suing in 14 states. We have more than 20 voting lawsuits. The Republican National Committee announced that it will spend, first it said it will spend $10 million opposing voting rights in court. That's just their litigation budget for opposing voting rights in court. Then they upped it to more than $11.5 million. And most recently, they said they'll spend whatever it takes. And so we are seeing literally the Republican National Committee and state Republican parties going to federal court and state courts all around the country to make voting harder. And, you know, think about how extraordinary that is and ask yourself, would the Republican Party under George Bush have even done that? Like to me, the fact that the Republican National Committee has as a stated policy that it will go to court to make voting rights harder seems to me to have broken down another norm that, you know, has traditionally governed American politics. I'm not so sure how much of a norm that still is. I mean, obviously it isn't, but I mean, I I think for a while now, the Republican Party has, part of their election strategy is suppressing votes. A hundred percent agree. A hundred percent agree. Okay. So, so I think that's been going on for a long time. Yep. The question, though, and, and really, this is, a, I know you're interviewing me, but this is a question to you, is do you think in 2003 that George Bush, as much as I fought, I thought he was a terrible president and fought tooth and nail on behalf of John Kerry to defeat him, do you think that George Bush would have had the Republican National Committee in 2003 state as a formal policy matter, not what they were doing on the ground, where I agree with you? They were engaged in voter suppression. But do you think they would have put out press releases saying, we are going to engage in this activity uh, and we are going to oppose voting rights? No, they they wouldn't have done that publicly. Yeah. So don't you think that- I mean, they're shameless now. But don't you think that matters though? It matters to me what, not just what they do, which which has always been problematic, but the fact that they are saying it. I mean, they're saying things all the time. When- Mitch McConnell says the state should go bankrupt when he says with a, uh, with a sly smile, if a vacancy comes open in the Supreme Court, would the Senate put someone through this year? Yep. Yep. Of course. After, of course, the whole thing about Merrick Garland was, well, that's an elect. It's an election year. That was February <laughs> when Scalia died, early February. You know, I think McConnell is just, he'll fill vacancy until noon, January 20th, 2021, if Biden wins. If someone, God forbid, perishes, one of the justices, on January 19th, <laughs> <laughs> He'll call the Senate through and they'll, they'll uh, confirm somebody. Yeah, I think that that's right. And I think, you know, you have seen Senator McConnell engage in, you know, norm breaking behavior for years now. And that has transformed the Senate, as you know, uh, in a really negative way. And it's affected the courts in a really negative way. Now he wants to bring uh, the Senate back and only really to confirm judges, I'm sure. Uh, that that seems to be his uh, that seems to be his stated <laughs> his stated position. <laughs> okay, let's let's take a break. We'll be right back with uh, Mark Elias, uh, lawyer for the Democrats. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Sound the gifting panic alarm. We've all been there. You need to find the perfect gift. You have absolutely zero ideas and you don't know where to start. Relax. Now you can use gift mode on Etsy. Gift Mode takes the stress out of gifting, so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Just answer a few short questions about who you're shopping for and what they like, and Gift Mode gives you curated gift ideas based on hundreds of personas. Imagine pages of artisan espresso mugs for the coffee connoisseur in your life. Or for the pickleballer, customized paddle covers in every shade imaginable. Etsy's got you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. Let's talk about the things they're going to go after, right? They're going to go after, uh, certainly, we're going to try to make it much harder to vote by mail, right? Yes. And that has obviously uh, been their, their aim in many of these court cases. And the President of the United States has said as much that he wants the Republican Party to, to make vote by mail as, as difficult as possible. Now, you wrote an article in the Atlantic Monthly, and I'm going to tick through some of these these issues about vote by mail. (laughs) You you say it should be postage free or paid for by the government. That's correct. Um, And that's because we know that when you make individuals pay for postage to return their mail ballots, um, it has a dissuasive effect or a suppressive effect both on people based on socioeconomic uh, considerations, but also age. Young voters tend to be less reliably users of, of stamps than older voters. Is that the norm that, that these are postage free? Um, you know, the states that do uh, vote by mail as their rule, states like Washington, Oregon, Colorado, yes. In other states, some states do. In some states, actually, it's up to the counties. So sometimes counties or cities provide free postage. Uh, it's pretty hard for anyone to argue against free postage. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, <laughs> you know? it is sort of a poll tax. You know, I mean, uh, there's not really a pro-postage uh, paid by voter uh, <laughs> position. Well, I'd look, at, I don't put it past them, the form of an astroturf. Yeah, exactly. You know, voters for... For postage <laughs> <laughs> on on absentee ballots, okay. Postmarked on or before election day. So in Wisconsin, was it that they had to receive it the uh, mail in ballot on election day? Was that part of or that's part of the dispute between us and Republicans, right? Yeah. So part of the dispute between us and Republicans in Wisconsin was. At what point do you cut off people's right to vote? So we know that when you require ballots to be received by election day rather than postmarked by election day, we know that that has a disproportionate negative impact on young voters and minority voters. There was just a study um, a few weeks ago out of Florida that looked at the question of rejected ballots. uh, And we see a much higher level of rejections among young voters and older voters and 
uh, minority voters versus white voters. And in in, in um, Arizona, where we're currently suing over this particular issue, the issue of do ballots count if they're cast by election, even if they're received afterwards, um, there is a four or 600 times more likely your ballot will be rejected due to this cutoff if you're Latino or Native American than if you're white. There are both age and race. And that is because those groups tend to get the ballot in later. So it's not just um, the timing by which they get their ballot in. Um, The reliability of mail service uh, varies greatly uh, throughout the United States. Uh, There are different rates of reliability in rural areas versus urban areas. Uh, And particularly when you look at groups like Native Americans, um, there is less reliable mail service in parts of the Southwest among areas that are heavily Latino, the mail service is both less reliable and also uh, will just simply take longer. So the problem with the received by rule is that, you know, you have voters who are putting their ballots in the mail seven to 10 days in advance, and they're still not getting in by election day. And then you have others who are getting them in the mail two days before election day, they are getting in. We're a bit in the weeds, so I want to move along here, okay? Yep. Okay. I know that when you're in court, (laughs) <laughs> I live in the you weeds. You really have to, yeah, you have to be in the weeds. Okay, um, so signature matching, that's a fascinating one to me because I remember during our recount, we learned that a couple of ballots had been not counted because the signature on the absentee ballot didn't match. And I remember two instances. One was uh, an older gentleman had a stroke. Yep. Between when he had registered to vote and had that signature, and then when he voted absentee, so his signature was different, so it was discounted. But we got that vote counted, right? We did. It's funny because I sometimes say to people that most voting rights lawyers started by being interested in voter registration and then moved from the registration process to the voting process. I actually started as a recount lawyer <laughs> and then then moved <laughs> backwards to the voting process. And you're exactly right. My, my interest and my, uh, some would say, fixation on disenfranchising signature match laws comes from the experiences of 2008 in the recount in Minnesota, where we saw voters who had done everything right, but it had their ballots rejected because untrained workers in a rush were trying to compare whether they thought a signature on a return envelope matched a signature that had been provided many years before. Well, post-stroke, his signature was very different, so I'm not blaming the inexperienced uh, election worker. And uh, here's the other one. This this one was funny. Uh, so there was one mismatch where this kid, uh, he was 18 or above, uh, but he was at home, and he had an absentee ballot, and he signed it, and his mom saw the signature and said, what's that? He goes, well, that's my signature. And she goes, no, you're going to redo this and sign it, you know, legibly. Right. <laughs> and, and so I think he had to get another ballot or something and go back in, turn that one in, get a new thing, and, and then signed it. So, so his mother would approve it, and it didn't match his signature, of course. And so we got that one counted. What the lesson from all of that <laughs> has been that states need to provide 
training and systems in place, but also they need to notify voters, right? If voters have their ballots rejected due to signature mismatch, the counties or the local election officials need to reach out to those voters, tell them that their ballot was rejected for this reason and give them an opportunity to cure or to say, no, no, that was my ballot. Minnesota actually reformed its law after uh, that recount to now um, do verification on in a way that doesn't rely on signatures. So there are other ways of doing ballot verification other than signature matching, but where states use signature matching, they need to give voters an opportunity to be notified. Let's move on. Uh, community organizations should be permitted to help and uh, collect and deliver ballots. So here what we're talking about is is to collect voted sealed ballots. So this is after the voter is voted. They have now have a ballot that they need to return. And um, what we know is that many communities, particularly, again, Native American communities in Montana, are currently suing over this restriction. We sued in Arizona over this restriction. Both Native American communities and uh, some African-American and Latino communities, because of the unreliability of the mail service and the cutoffs, their preferred method to make sure their ballot gets in on time is to have a community group collect the sealed ballots and literally drive them uh, for delivery to the to the county office. It's a way to make sure that they don't miss the deadline due to the mail or where they're in a situation where they don't have access to street mail, a way to make sure their ballots get in. This is where the issue of voter fraud comes in because Republicans, Kobach, for example, remember he found the three million uh, votes that for Hillary, yes, the, that commission. <laughs> I mean, the, they just keep claiming and claiming and claiming that there's all this voter fraud. And thus far, the voter fraud I've seen in the, the years I've been watching this stuff is Republican voter fraud. We saw that in North Carolina. And actually, what you've seen to put a a finer point on it is in in places like North Carolina is not actually voter fraud, but it's election fraud, right? The voters there didn't commit fraud. The voters there were the victim of a fraud perpetrated by Republican, a Republican campaign and Republican operatives. So it's an important distinction between election fraud and voter fraud. Voter fraud, which is what Republicans claim happens, is that voters illegally vote. No one in North Carolina illegally voted. Instead, in a cynical effort to deprive the African-American community of their voice in that election, Republican operatives cheated to steal, the, to take away those voters' rights. So it wasn't voter fraud. It was election fraud by Republicans. How did they do that? So what they, what they did was they went to uh, individual voters' houses and told them that they would help them uh, apply for absentee ballots. And then they would either falsify the applications, they the operatives, or oh, would, would actually get the unvoted ballots and uh, unsealed and fill in uh, Republican candidates. So ah, it, that's right. Yeah, that's so right. the voters weren't committing any fraud. The voters were being were being cheated. Yeah, it was Republican election fraud, which is that's the only fraud I've seen. I remember I can't remember which election it was a number of years ago where this group, you know, they were going out like you can and registering people to vote. Yeah. Right. Yes. 
you know, Republicans have used this as evidence of Democratic fraud. And just because, you know, every once in a while, somebody has a joke puts Donald Duck. And it goes in and they go like, Donald Duck registered to vote. Well, they didn't accept it. They didn't, <laughs> they didn't register Donald Duck. It was just on the thing. But what, what this group did was register people and then throw out the Democrats. You know, it's funny you say that about um, Donald Duck, because I always say you need to distinguish between three things. You need to distinguish between voter fraud, election fraud, and voter registration problems. And as you say, Donald Duck may register, but Donald Duck's not going to vote. And the, the thing that drives me crazy more than anything is people will say there are dead people on the voting rolls. Well, of course, there are dead people on the voting rolls. The, the people <laughs> die. Like he, someone dies yesterday, like their family doesn't call up the board of elections and say, please remove the deceased from the voter rolls. Right. What happens is over time, those dead uh, voters get get removed when the death records get synced up with the voter record. In but fact, I wrote a sketch, I think, just for my own amusement, a couple of years ago, which was the premise was there's a guy in his deathbed and he's just obsessed with unregistering <laughs> before he dies. Yeah, exactly. And his family doesn't really care about that, yeah, exactly. but he does. <laughs> Precisely. And, 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 the good, and the fact is that when there are people on the voter rolls who are deceased or who have moved, they don't vote. Right. So it's a problem that uh, that has to be handled administratively. But honestly, the easiest way to handle making sure we have clean voter rolls uh, would be for states to adopt automatic voter registration, because when you have automatic registration, people get automatically registered and then they get automatically removed. So one of the things that I've tried to argue to Republicans is that if they're worried about voter registration fraud, as as inconsequential as that is, the easiest way to deal with, with it is to just have the state automatically register every eligible voter. And then when people become ineligible, the state will automatically deregister them. And then you never have to worry about private voter registration at all. Let, let's talk about early voting just uh, quickly, if we could. One thing they try to do is cut down the number of days, right? They've gotten rid of voting on Sunday because of souls to the polls, which is at black churches. It's been kind of a tradition to, after church, take people who want to vote to vote, right? Yeah. Early voting is, is important, you know, and more important in the age of, in the day of COVID than even before, because when you let people vote on weekends in particular, uh, you spread out the vote over a longer period of time you allow for greater social distancing because it is spread out over a more number of days. Uh, and it's, it's convenient. It's convenient, obviously, for, as you say, the African-American community has organized itself in many places around Sunday voting souls to the polls. Uh, but frankly, you know, Saturday and Sunday voting is, is widely popular among Democrats, Republicans, independents, black, white. Uh, and the only reasons why Republicans oppose it is because it allows more people to vote and because as you say, African-Americans in particular make higher uses of it than, than whites. Okay, let's talk about staffing at polls. Now, you said in Wisconsin, one of the issues was they couldn't, that's why they had only five polling places in, in Milwaukee, so they just didn't, couldn't get enough people to man the polls. Next November, we got to make sure that we have staffing at 
the polling places. Yeah, my main message to everyone listening um, and to all the campaigns and nonprofit organizations is if you want to do something to help democracy, get trained and be a poll worker. Because in 2018, two-thirds of poll workers were over the age of 60, and 25% were over the age of 70. And so we need to do things to incentivize younger people and a bigger pool of people to be available to work as poll workers um, on election day. Yep. That's a good movement. We have to have a lot of polling places so that people can vote. Yeah. And inevitably, when we don't have enough polling places, it, it inevitably winds up hitting the precincts that are most heavily minority. Uh, we see that time and time again, where you have a county that has you know, both predominantly white areas of, uh, the, of voting and predominantly black and Hispanic. And we see a differential in the staffing and the lines. There was actually a study done by a group of political scientists that used cell phone ping data to determine wait times and found that African-Americans on average wait 30% longer than whites. Uh, when you look at predominantly black precincts versus predominantly white precincts. And a lot of that happened. Now, are now. Republicans aware of this because uh, so we can do something about it? <laughs> <laughs> look, there, what, the, the biggest thing we can do here, there's there's ways to litigate these cases. And that's something we're, we're definitely looking at. Um, but the biggest thing I can tell progressives to do is to get trained and volunteer to be a poll worker. Because if we if we have enough poll workers in in those areas, then we'll be able to open more polls. Mm -hmm. Okay, that seems very important. It is. So uh, people listening to this podcast, uh, do that. That's it. That's something you can do. Yeah, and if people want to know how you do that, Mm -hmm. these trainings and recruitments are done um, at the county level in most states. In states like Michigan, uh, which operates its elections at the municipal level, um, but uh, it's definitely it's definitely an important thing to do. Speaking of trainings, let's go back to the recount. Every ballot was was counted by hand, and uh, there were all kinds of counting places, right? And they'd take every ballot, and we'd have someone from our team and someone from the Coleman team. We had two, uh, actually, at each table. And one of the first thing we did was a training to train people how to do this, right? Correct. And uh, we had a huge, a huge crowd. And uh, this is when the Coleman team was just trying to get this done because they were ahead. They just wanted they were trying to rush this thing there. And do you remember the chant I led? I remember there was a chant and I remember that you thought it was incredibly amusing. Yes. Well, <laughs> you didn't have to say that. No, I remember there <laughs> okay, was a chant. Here's what I it was. was, what do we want fairness and what do we, when do we want it? No, 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 no. Oh. This is what it is. Okay. Almost. What do we want? Patience. <laughs> Patience. When do we want it? Now. <laughs> Patience. That's right. Yes. I did. Patience. And then we were going, Patience now. Patience now. Patience. That's how we got to that. <laughs> Now, what I remember was that you had recruited some other people to... Paul Begala, I think, showed up, and Bradley Whitford. Yeah, and I remember there was just like a huge crowd of people who were super excited that you were there and Paul, and I don't remember whether it was 
Bradley Whitford or who, but I remember it was very, for a for a recount training, it was a raucous event. We needed a lot of people. <laughs> I know. And that's, <laughs> that's why we got them to, there. We wanted to track people, and it was mobbed. It was. And we trained those people, and it was uh, it was very helpful to have all, all those folks. Yes. But I think patience now is brilliant. I agree. That was actually... I, it was grueling during the, I mean, our, my, I had a, essentially a nine month recount. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Not essentially. I mean, it was a nine month recount. You're going to have a busy year. I have the feeling. It's already a busy year. I think we've seen more voting rights litigation already in 2020 than we saw in all of 2016. So it's going to be a busy year and, you know, we just hope, hope for the best. And, and what happens when, uh, Trump calls off the election because of the pandemic. So he can't. Um, so the election <laughs> is set by act of Congress. And no, I get this question mm-hmm. a lot, Al, uh, is people think he's going to call off the election or postpone it. Uh, federal election, general election day is set by act of Congress and the president can't move it. A state can't move it. So we're going to have an election on November 3rd, one way or the other. Uh, that's good, I guess. No, it is. It good. is good. What am it I is saying? good. It just means we're going to need to be prepared. Like, there's no getting too close to the election day and being like, "Oh, we need another week." Like, it's going to be mm-hmm. on November third. <laughs> so, first Tuesday after the uh, first Monday. The Tuesday following the first Monday in November, correct? How the hell did they come up with that? You know, it's a law that's been on the books some- since 1845. So I don't know, but that is the uni- that is the uniform election day uh, set by Congress pursuant to their constitutional authority. Somebody said, you know what? Let's make it the first Tuesday after the first Monday. Somebody said that. Yep. And, it, and, <laughs> and, and, and it's in the law, and that's when it's going to be. <laughs> and it should be, we should vote on weekends, shouldn't we? I mean, weekend voting would, would increase turnout. There is no question. The fact that we have a uniform election day that is during the week makes it much harder for people who have jobs during normal business hours to voting, which is one of the reasons why absentee voting has become so popular even before uh, the current pandemic, because it gives people the opportunity to vote outside of that window. It's also why early voting is so popular. But yeah, uh, if we had weekend voting, you would see increased participation across the across the, the board. That's uh, the battle you're, you're fighting. You're going to be fighting all year uh, to make sure that people get to vote in, in November. Yes, indeed. That is the battle. And I wish I could say that um, we are assured of winning that battle, but it is every day we need to keep fighting that fight because um, uh, it's really important. Uh, Thanks for listening. My uh, thanks to Leo Kotke for this beautiful, beautiful music, Uh, to Peter Ogburn, who is my executive producer. And I want to thank uh, Mike Henry, who did the Kurt Schilling to the voice of Kurt Schilling. He, I did not have Kurt Schilling. I had Mike Henry. Those voices for uh, uh, Family Guy and uh, the Cleveland Show. So thank you for lending your talent, and um, thank you for listening. And uh, next week, uh, Larry Brilliant, one of the very, very, very smart people who helped eradicate smallpox. Larry Brilliant. Very, 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 very smart. See you next week.
Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat.